0: You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, six years ago, when my wife and I moved here to Washington DC, I was able to meet with uh, the chief of staff of a senator. And so I put on my suit, went up to his office, and met with him. And I asked him a completely unqualified question. I just said, how can we serve your people? And in the midst of that broad question, I remember he paused for a minute, and then he responded, no one knows how to date. He said, I'm surrounded by attractive, talented, successful people whose relational lives are a mess. He said, even the married ones. Their marriages are so fragile or in jeopardy. I said, will you talk about the subject of dating? You know, it's fascinating. Um, I've been reading a lot, Church, about your sex life over the break. (laughs) Not you personally, all right? Uh, But your generation, primarily millennials, lots of books on stats, and I think this won't be a surprising uh, message to you to hear that uh, the data is depressing. Uh, It's the state of modern romance and dating and marriage is in many ways sad. Now, studies indicate your longing for connection and commitment is as strong as it's ever been in human society. But your confidence in finding love and in finding love that will last is fading. And there's some reasons for that. In 1970, 80% of Americans between the ages of 25 and 34 were married. By 2015, that's shrunk to 40%. That many, uh, an astronomical amount of us are are not finding and coupling with each other. And those of us that do, uh, the CDC indicates that out of 100 marriages in the United States, 42 will end in divorce. When we do make these bonds, they can be so fragile. And here's the thing, we tend to want to immediately personalize this struggle, but it's not all entirely your fault. There have been shifts in society that have impacted our ability to find and maintain intimacy. It's interesting, uh, Esther Perel is a sex therapist, and she said, in the tribal days when we lived in villages, it was easy. If you wanted a relationship, there were two options, her or her, and you just picked one. And she said, and there was this high level of community. You lived in a tribe where there was very clear boundaries of what you did and did not do. There was very clear structures of how you worked, how you spent your time. There was all kinds of rigid structure that can sound confining, but the benefits of it were, it gave you safety, it gave you community, it gave you security, and it gave you a sense of identity. And she said, but now as we've moved to the big city, we want autonomy, the freedom to to do whatever I wanna do, to be whoever whoever I wanna be. And there's some benefits to freedom, but in the midst of our freedom, what we found is we are desperately lonely and isolated. Uh, Vivek Murthy, who's a former surgeon general, said the most prevalent health issue in America today is isolation. That loneliness will be classified as an epidemic by 2030. Uh, Kristen Radke wrote a book called Seek You. It's a journal through American loneliness, and she indicates that a research team aggregated 70 studies, totaling over 3 million subjects, and found that those who reported feelings of loneliness were more likely to be dead by the time the studies were over than those who identified as socially fulfilled. Loneliness, the ache of it, is hurting us. And yet the modern dating scripts, as as open and free as our our dating world is now, there there is no confining strictures and structures and rules. That openness has not necessarily led us to feel more free and liberated, but often it's led us to feel more stuck. Uh, Christine Elba is a columnist for the Washington Post, and she just recently wrote a book entitled Rethinking Sex. And it says on the jacket, Christine Emba has a message for women who feel let down by today's sexual culture. You're not crazy. The thing you sense is wrong is wrong. For young women, sex is freer and more open than ever before. Anything goes, they're told, as long as everyone says yes and does so enthusiastically. Yet more sexual liberation has not necessarily resulted in more happiness. And after extended research and studies and interviews, she concludes that the narratives around sex and the narratives around dating seem deeply confused. And she reports over and over again, particularly interviewing people here in our city, she says, so many are saying they feel jaded and discouraged by the romantic landscape, its lack of trust, emotion, and commitment. But they also feel as though other options aren't reachable or realistic. They're experiencing too much of the kind of sex that saps the spirit and makes us feel less human, not more. Sex that leaves us detached, disillusioned, or dissatisfied. They know that something in our sex and dating culture is off somehow, wishing that things were different, even if we don't know exactly why we feel this way or how to make the shift to something better. She said, hopes are high, but outcomes trend low. And she says it's led to what uh, Indiana Saracen calls heteropessimism a regret, embarrassment, or hopelessness about the straight experience. Uh, Mark Regneris is a research professor at the University of Texas that studies dating, relationships, intimacy, and sex among young people. And he said after extensive interviews, he said the relationship histories of young Americans are telling us are growing increasingly predictable. Plenty of sex starting early, before expressions of love, but not necessarily before feelings and hopes of it. Underdeveloped interest in sacrificing on behalf of the other accounts of overlapping partners, much drama, and in the end, nothing but mixed memories and expired time. And it's gotten to the point of discouragement so that in 2019, Pew Research did a study and they found that fully half of single adults have given up on looking for a relationship at all. And I gotta tell you, reading all this as a pastor who loves you has just made me profoundly sad Because the topic of of romance and dating and love and marriage, these are supposed to be associated with words like excitement, thrill, mystery. It's supposed to crackle with energy. It's not supposed to be filled with words like anxiety, depression, disappointment, despair. And so the question then becomes, well, then what do you do about it? What does a church do about it? You can avoid it. Say, hey, this topic is a little dangerous. Don't fiddle around with a grenade. Leave it over there and uh, let you figure it out online, right? And there have been times in church past where we've just avoided the entire subject. Or you can get obsessed by it. And as fascinating as it is, as difficult as it's been to meet and pair off with each other, more money's being spent in our country today on dating apps and books and pornography than ever before. The interest has not waned. So there's obsession or there's repression. Is there another option somewhere? And I wanna say I believe there is, and it's called celebration. And in the midst of that, there's this fascinating little book in the Old Testament called the Song of Solomon. And it's a book of poetry. It's called a song. Uh, It's not a textbook. It doesn't build like an argument. It uses metaphor and imagery. Your eyes are like doves. What does that mean? It requires some interpretation, but it, it's meant to not just illuminate the mind, but to stir the heart. It's not just called a song. In verse one, it's called the song of songs. Uh, that could mean that it's a compilation of songs, because it is, and yet it goes further than that. It's not just the song of songs. In, in, in Hebrew, if you wanted to emphasize something, you would repeat the word uh, to, to indicate it's a superlative. You'll see it mentioned the heaven of heavens uh, or the vanity of all vanities or the holy of holies or the king of kings or lord of lords. And here you say, this is the song of all songs that King Solomon, it's called Solomon's Song. That you find out in 1 Kings chapter five that wisdom of God was granted to Solomon, that he wrote over 3,000 Proverbs, words of wisdom, and he wrote over 1,005 songs. And what we have here is a, a compilation of his best. And what you have nestled into the very word of God is an unabashed celebration of the gift of sex, love, marriage, and romance, though not exactly in that order. Now, as soon as I say that, some might say, well, Ben, is this just joining the obsession with sex that's in the modern culture today. I would say no, and I would say no, because uh, the ancient Near East, when the Old Testament was written and New Testament, you see an absolute obsession with, and and often a lot of deep pain coming from, the misuse of sexuality. And so the people of God in the Old Testament didn't shy away from this subject. They said, no, let me hold up a standard. Let me show you something different. Uh, So it's fascinating. Uh, Years ago, I was asked if I would... um, travel uh, the country and speak on the book of Song of Solomon. Will you go and lead marriage conferences on this book? And I said no, because I was in my first year of marriage and I thought no one wants to hear my thoughts on a marriage that lasts, that's lasted about five months, right? (laughs) No one's gonna come for that, so I said no. But this May, Donna and I will celebrate 19 years of marriage, right? (laughs) Which is crazy, we're only 26. How does that even... The 90s, man. But... But here's the thing, even if you don't trust us or say, I don't wanna be like you, that's fine. I'm gonna present to you the word of God. I wanna show you what God says about how to navigate the the unfamiliar, uncertain, and dangerous waters of life and love. Now, this book is gonna be filled with a lot of imagery. It's poetry. It follows a rough chronology of this couple, and yet it's going to be all this imagery that's meant to call you to a higher Standard, And as soon as I say that, I, I want to say it's, it's filled with a lot of springtime imagery. Uh, their, their love is pictured as a garden. Their bodies like an oasis of delight. And uh, so I even wrestled with, should we do this book in springtime? Because so many of the images are about spring. But my young staff informed me uh, that this is cuffing season. <laughs> and uh, for the uninitiated, Webster defines... Cuffing season is a period of time when single people begin to look for short-term partnerships to pass the colder months of the year. Cuffing season usually begins in October and lasts until right around Valentine's Day. So I wanna jump into this book on the celebration of sex, love, marriage, and romance. And I'll warn you, there are times where this book, as Morgan says, gets spicy. The first time I ever preached this book was to a football stadium filled of college students. And I'm not making this up. Midway through the sermon, as I'm just reading and explaining this text, the sprinklers came on. Uh, And I didn't do it. I don't know who did. Maybe it was a gardener that was worried about these kids getting too turned on. Uh, Maybe it was the Lord, I don't know. But uh, Brennan is standing ready to turn on the sprinklers. And we'll jump in. But let me say this before we dive in. Some of you, this is an exciting topic. Some of you, it's a very depressing one. And you're like, man, I am out of here as fast as I can get out of here. Let me tell you something. What's my goal here? It is not to pressure you today to do anything, nor is it to shame you about what you've done. Why are we even doing this? Why wade into this awkward together? Why am I doing this? Because I want to, rather than focus on the prohibitions of what should stop, I wanna give us a vision of what could be in the midst of all the despair, can we see a direction of saying, but that is possible. So I want to give us a vision to strive for, and I want to stir up hope. And so this book moves in about six major sections. We'll cover the first and the remaining time today, which is really the song, one commentator called this first part of the book, the song of yearning, that it's about attraction and longing. If you're looking for a relationship what should you be looking for? Well, verse two, the woman begins to speak, and the book opens with this declaration. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. All right, okay. She just jumps right in, right? And when she jumps right in, it begins this song with a longing for intimacy. She desires him. Let him kiss me with the kiss of his mouth. She looks at him and is unabashed and declaring, I want to face on my face is a desire for intimacy wrong. No, that's Bible. God made the, the equipment we play the game with, right? She wants him and she's not afraid to say it. He doesn't have to wish he knew she wanted him. He knows because she said it, right? Is sexual desire wrong? No, God created the equipment with which we play the game. Now, a natural question would be to ask, what has this man done to get her so excited? And the book continues, for your love is better than wine. Uh, Wine was the drink of celebration. In in the ancient world, it was was the, the most delicious thing you could put to your lips. There's a richness to it, and a sensuousness to it. It made your, your body warm and your head light, right? And she says, your love is greater than that, right? And not only that, she says, I, I'm desiring this man. And, and, and at first it's third person, let him kiss me. And then she says, your love. There's this desire to move towards him, even in the switch of pronoun. Now, again, the natural question would be, what has got her so dialed up? Gentlemen, if you haven't started now, uh, take notes. What has he done to get her so excited? Verse 3 says, your anointing oils are fragrant. She comments on his fragrance. Song of Solomon's filled with, with all this imagery that excites the senses. She's talking about taste. Now she moves to smell. Later they'll move to touch and to sound. It's a sensual book. And yet here she says uh, that your anointing oils are fragrant. The Middle East is is hot, sweaty, they didn't have frequent showers, so men would ma- wear aromatic oils. She's saying, gentlemen, he smells good. Uh, his cologne game is strong, right? Uh, he cares about basic hygiene. Jot that down, right? Bath, Wash your clothes. Don't become obsessed with your body, but, you know, don't be afraid of a stick of deodorant. That's the idea. But there's really more going on here than that. And she says, your anointing oils are fragrant. And then look what she says, your name is oil poured out. Now, now there's some beauty in, in the Hebrew. I, I don't really know how to bring it across, but there's, a, there's a, a sort of a rhyming happening with the word oil and the word name, shem Shemakah. your name, like fragrant oil, is oil poured out. And that's so amazing to say that because your sense of smell is the sense most tied to memory, and it, and it elicits a response. If you smell something delightful, what happens? You move towards it. You open up to it. You respond to it. Hmm. If something smells gross, what happens? You recoil. You scrunch your nose, like, how can I get my nostrils away? You make a face. Ugh. Right? You recoil from it. And she says, your name is like oil poured out. Uh, When your name is mentioned in society, it elicits a response. What is the response when your name is spoken in a circle? Is it sweetness and people go, huh, Or do they go, pfft? Your name there is your character. Your character is is the summation of your moral qualities and your choices. When I mention a name, like let me just pick a random one, Hitler. You're probably not thinking of particular actions he did or particular sentences he said. You're taking the entire collection of his choices and words, and in that, you've, you've composited an idea of his character, and what do you do? Right? You recoil from that name. Or I say a different name, like Martin Luther King, and, and you think of the, the totality of his decisions and choices, and you go, huh, there's a positive response. Your name is your character. And she says of this man, your name is sweetness to me. If you're looking for a relationship, what should you be looking for? According to the word of God, the first thing you need to see is character, character. The moral qualities of that human being should be what drives you. Notice it's his character that turns him on. The song doesn't start with her going, man, he's hot. He works high out. It doesn't start there. She doesn't say, well, look at his rear in those jeans. It doesn't start with his appearance. Because we all know looks will fade, right? And, and it's not a good uh, foundation for a relationship. If looks or attractiveness or talent were a good foundation for a relationship, then the most stable relationships in the world should be in Hollywood. And yet, pick any actor, actress, pick pick anyone. And what you see is the record of devastation and deep hurt in relationship. And I'm not rejoicing over their pain, but I'm saying you have some of the most talented and beautiful people in society. Those things, talent and beauty, are not a good foundation for a lasting marriage. And so when this woman talks about her desire for this man, what she desires first and what we should is character. How does he treat me? Is he impatient? Is he selfish? Is he a bad listener? If he's a stench now, what makes you think he'll be sweetness when you commit to him? Anybody can take the name Christian. Anyone can. I had a friend in college that she went on a date with a guy that had a Bible on his coffee table and an ichthys on the back of his car, and he sexually assaulted her on date one. I don't care if you put the name Christian on your life. I need to see has the character of Christ been formed in your life. I have a country friend say it all the time. You can put a bow tie on a turd, but it's still a turd. (laughs) I don't care what you call yourself. We need to see your life, and your life gives us a composite of your character. Your name will bring a response. Is it the smell of sweetness or is it a stench? Lady Psalm 1 says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand on the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. In it, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. That's the kind of guy you want, not perfect, but perfectible. Because he wants God to carasso, to etch his character. That he says, man, I don't, don't wanna walk with the mockers and revilers. I don't wanna rip on people and trash them. I don't want to sit in the seat of mockers. I don't want to walk along with sinners. I don't want to compromise morality. If he's willing to do that with them, what will he do to you? 1 Corinthians 5, speaking to the church, Paul says, I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, but is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater or reviler or drunker or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. He wasn't saying don't be friends with people who don't have faith in Jesus. We're meant to deeply love everybody. But he says if someone's going to take the name of brother in Christ, yet manifest none of the character in Christ, he says don't go eat with him. You don't have to go on a date with him if you're watching him revile and swindle and and not take care of the people around him. Uh, Proverbs 22 says a good name is more desirable than great riches. To be esteemed is better than silver or gold, and so some of us, we don't need to work on a relationship with someone else. We need to work on ourselves, and let God carve into us character. Now, I want you to see here: she's not the only one who notices. She continues as she sees his name like oil poured out. She says, therefore, the virgins or the young women love you. Now, why mention them? Well, these young women are important. There's three main characters in Song of Solomon: the man, the woman, and the woman's friends which is significant because that's how it plays out in real life, right? If you want to be her lover, you got to get with her friends, right? We all know this. Uh, Donna, the first time I asked her on a date, like not hung out in common circles, but really asked her on a date, she said, okay, pick me up at my church. And when I picked her up at her church, I had to meet like 200 Brothers, sisters, aunties, uncles, everyone at their church wanted to know who this boy is that's going to try to get alone with this girl that they dearly loved. I had to run the gauntlet of her relational network, and I actually respected that. I'm like, okay, all right. I see this sifting mechanism here, and I welcome the challenge, right? And here she says, therefore, the young women love you. When you're attracted to someone, that infatuation can lead you to be so excited. You're like a deer in rut. You'll go running into danger and not know. You need other friends who aren't turned on by him to evaluate him more uh, clearly. And say, is he a worthy recipient of your affections? It's good to feel that way. Just make sure they're placed in the right man. Does he have character? Therefore, the virgins love you. So she says, draw me after you, let us run. I want to move away from, I want to move with him. She says, draw me after you. The king has brought me into his chambers. It could be a wish, a desire. It's her saying, I want to be alone with you. I want to be in the inner places of your palace. I want VIP access to your heart. It's good the desire to pair off that we have that. And yet before that desire, it's fascinating that the others speak again and they said, we will exult and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. Before the pairing off, she has a community that says, your attraction is well placed in that man because he has character. Uh, So make sure your relationships approve of the right person for the right reasons. I remember when I was in college, uh, my sister was about to come to college and I was very nervous about just her life and and successfully navigating young adulthood. And and I remember coming into a lunchroom once and watching this young woman uh, that that was attractive, a friend of mine that was constantly hit on by guys. And there was a guy uh, asking her on a date, hey, come out with me, come on, let's go out. And she she was like, no, I'm not gonna do it. And uh, he says, come on, let's let's go on a date tonight. Let me take you to dinner. And she said, no, I don't know you. And he said, well, how are you gonna get to know me if you don't go on a date with me? And she just went, sorry, I'm not doing it. And he walked away. And as an older brother concerned about my little sister, I was like, I've gotta understand what just happened there. And I remember moving towards her and I said, will you teach me, Rabbi, your ways? Like, how did you? Because I had so many friends end up feeling pressured and they ended up in a situation with a guy where they didn't feel safe. I said, how were you able to, to, to rebuff his advances? And she said, Ben, the, the, the Christian community in our campus is pretty small. And she said, I've never seen that guy worshiping, serving, caring for people anywhere. And so let me give you controversial point number one. You know, I'm not against dating apps, but one of the dangers in our modern culture is, is we've often removed dating entirely from a social context. And in doing that, someone can be nice to their buddies and a monster when they're one-on-one with someone they're attracted to. And so I think there's wisdom in the evaluation process to doing it in a communal environment. Quickly hang out in groups. Because when you're in groups of people, you get to evaluate that person uh, in the way they treat other people they're not sexually attracted to. How do they treat your friend that's a little bit annoying? How do they treat your buddy that talks a lot? Are they a good listener? Look, the one-on-one date is not a bad thing, but it's hard sometimes as an evaluative method. Why? Because anyone can lie for an hour. They can sit at dinner and go, that is fascinating. Tell me more about your cats. But you don't really know what he's like. But watch him among your community. See how he treats the old. See how he treats the young. See how he treats people when they're not at their best because that's how he'll treat you when you're not at yours. And so let the community in to evaluate, right? But notice, he's not the only one with character. Look at her. Uh, verse five, she begins to speak of herself. She says, I am very dark, but lovely. O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. She has dark skin. And she says they're like the tents of Kedar. That was a Bedouin tribe that would travel in the wilderness and they made tents of a coarse, dark goat hair. It had to be sturdy and tough to resist the wind and the sand and the heat. So she said, there's a toughness to my skin. But then she says, but I'm lovely. And she says, like the curtains of Solomon, that would be the opposite of a a rough Bedouin goat herding tent is, is the lush and vibrant curtains within the very palace of the king that would often be dyed a deep purple. So she gets this contrast. I am dark, but I am desirable. I'm, I'm tough like the tents of Kedar, but I'm luxurious like the curtains of Solomon. I'm dark, but desirable. Now, let me clarify here. She's not making a racial statement. This is a Middle Eastern couple, and it clarifies in the next verse, verse six. She says, do not gaze at me because I'm dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyard, but my own vineyard I have not kept. There's a play on words there. She says, the sun has burned me because my brother, brothers burned with anger towards me. You find out later in this psalm that uh, her father's never mentioned, but you have these brothers that are caretakers of this young woman. And so you get this idea here that she said, my brothers were burned with anger. They made me work in the vineyard of our family. And so my own vineyard, which often to the book is, is mentioned as her body, she says, I haven't kept. What she says here is, uh, uh, I had to work that the king married a blue-collar girl, that she said, I was out there working hard, and the sun burned my skin. I didn't get to take care of it. Like, did you notice the daughters of the Jerusalem? The city girls that maybe grew up with some wealth. It's interesting, in Esther, chapter two, you know, Esther, who was brought in to be evaluated by the king, whether or not he wanted to marry her, as this pagan king is evaluating women, before he would even look at them, they had to go through 12 months of skin treatment before he would see them there was a high value on the quality of the care of your skin. And so here, uh, you know, in in, in the modern culture, we tend to see tan, toned, lean bodies as attractive. Uh, In these days, that would have been indicative of a a peasant class. Uh, You think about, like, uh, early European drawings. Uh, The peasant class was was, uh, often sun-tanned and lean, and so what was the picture of beauty in a lot of Renaissance painting? A a woman who's pale and uh, plump, right, is the, the vision of beauty is contrast. And yet here in this moment, she says, hey, I'm dark, but I'm lovely. What she's saying there is, I don't fit the beauty standards of the day, and that's okay. You see this amazing security in this woman. She says, don't dismiss me because I don't look like the magazines or the Instagram models. Yeah, I've got some rough skin, but I am lovely. And she resists the pull of obsession about our body. Uh, it's interesting, Courtney Cox was on uh, Bear Grylls, watching a lot of Bear Grylls at Stewart House. And uh, Courtney Cox was there, and she has this moment of honesty out in the wilderness with Bear Grylls. And she says there was this pressure to try to continue to hold on to a, a look of youth. And she said, I began to do things to my body and my face. She said, and I looked in the mirror one day, and I said, I look horrible. She said, I was chasing this pressure from the outer culture and I did things to me I regret. And thankfully, they're not things that can be undone. And she said, I've had to learn to let go and be at peace with the beauty I have in me. And that's the idea here. She said, I don't fit the standard of the daughters of Jerusalem, but don't dismiss me. There's a security about her. Uh, I had a friend that was a lovely Girl, And people would come up and tell her that sometimes in a weird way. They would walk up to her and say, you're very attractive. And she would never go, oh, stop, right? Or she wouldn't be like, really? You know, and uh, she would just go, thank you. And it wasn't a false humility and it wasn't an arrogance. She just said, thank you, and moved on. That there's a stability to her. And not just a stability, but she's hardworking. Uh, We can debate whether or not it was a good or bad thing for her brothers to say, hey, you gotta go work in the vineyard, but the truth is, she did it. She's a hardworking girl that she's out there working. And the Bible often extols that kind of woman who's willing to work hard with their hands. Rachel, is a picture of beauty in Genesis, was her shepherdess. The Proverbs 31 woman is a woman who's industrious and kind. Uh, It's interesting, in in the Hebrew Bible, the way the Old Testament's laid out, you get the book of Proverbs that ends with the, the virtuous woman of Proverbs 31. And then you see Ruth. Ruth, who maybe wasn't the ideal candidate for marriage in that day, she had married poorly, he died. She was a widow who was poor and working in the fields. And yet she was a high yield woman. She was a righteous woman, a valiant woman that that she was uh, strong and tender. She was tough and kind And Boaz, a righteous man, says, that's the kind of woman I want. So it moves from a Proverbs 31 woman to showing you a Proverbs 31 woman, and then it moves to the Song of Solomon, which is a celebration of the love of a righteous couple. And guys, you want a woman like that. That Proverbs 31 says strength and dignity are her clothing. You want a woman with moral standard, that when she speaks to you, it's with words of wisdom. When she works, it's to bless. If she's always got beef with her roommates, if she's always complaining, if she's always trashing people online. Proverbs says it's better to live on the corner of a roof than in a house with a contentious woman. That's not for the married guy sitting on the corner of his house going, now you tell me, right? (laughs) That's for you as you're evaluating who should I be attracted to. You should be attracted to character that she's clothed with dignity. She has a strength and a tenderness. She's been shaped by the character of God. And in that, she's got moral standards. She says in verse seven, tell me you whom my soul loves where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. Why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flocks of your companions? She wants this man and she says, tell me where you are. Tell me how to find you. And then she says, why should I be like a veiled one following the flocks of your companions? Now there's a bit of debate over what does that mean, a veiled one following? It's like that, that she doesn't want people to see. She's trying to be around where his friends are to be where he is. That she says, I want to be where you are, but I don't want to be a, a wanderer, a veiled one, a wrapped one who's trying to sneak out to get where you are. Notice the tension in that, that there's a willingness to, I want to be around you, but I don't want to have to force it. It's like being interested in a guy and so walking your dog in Lincoln Park because he lives right there on it and you live in Silver Spring. And he goes, wait, what are you doing here? You live miles away. And you're like, what? I don't know. What are you doing here? This is so weird. you like, She says, I'm willing to do it, but I don't want to do it. And do you notice that the book began? She doesn't say, I'm going to kiss him with the kisses of my mouth. She doesn't say like, well, I'm taking charge here. She says, let him do it. I I want you, but there's there's some standards where I'm not going to become desperate for you. And I don't want to have to chase you. It's interesting, as as, as liberated as sexuality and marriage has become in a modern culture, studies indicate over and over again, there's still something deep in the heart of a woman that wants to be pursued. What's a man that will initiate? And here she says, I'm willing, but I don't want to have to chase you. And he playfully tells her, well then follow the tracks of the flocks. Look where I am. I'm leading and shepherding for the young, for the, for the tender. Proverbs 3 says, charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. That's what you want. When you're not at your best, you want someone who will love you because they love the Lord and their character has been shaped to look like Christ. Now, I want you to notice, not just character is what you look for. Notice their kindness. Listen to how they talk to each other. You want kindness to be what attracts you. Nine times he calls her in Hebrew, rayati. Rayati is a term of endearment. It means companion, it it means friend. He's not just obsessed with her body, her attractiveness, erotically. He calls her, you're my friend, that I enjoy you at an intellectual and an emotional level. And so he compliments her in verse nine. He says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. she probably explain that. You go, Benny. he compliments her, he just called her a horse face. (laughs) Uh, Look, uh, horses even now are this beautiful uh, combination of strength and and grace right? Of dignity and power. There's something majestic about a well-cared-for horse. And he says, you're like a horse of Pharaoh. Egypt was famous for their developing of horses. He said, you're like the best of all breeds. You're like a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with string of pearls. So he's talking about her jewelry. He's like, look at your jewelry. It's, it's amazing. This is You didn't wear that when you were farming. This is probably a picture of, of their wedding days. They're reminiscing on their love. And he says, man, you're, you're embroidered like one because if you look at ancient uh, pictures of Pharaoh's chariots, they would put jewelry jewelry on their, the best of their horses. He says, you're like the best of the best. It's funny. One commentator says uh, there was an Egyptian king long ago, Tutmosis III, who he sent a mare, which is a female horse that was in heat uh, among the horses of uh, the enemy army because it drove all the stallions crazy. It was a way to win the war. Just send a mare out there and all the stallions lost their mind. And some people think that's what's happening here. He's just like, girl, you got all the stallions going crazy, right? But I, I don't know. Uh, I tend to think he's just saying, you are the best. And as he says that, it's interesting. I want you to notice, guys, he compliments her face. He doesn't compliment her rear. A lot of songs today emphasize on everything else but uh, the face of a woman. And yet he starts with the relational contact point where the most expression of our emotions and thoughts comes from. He cares about her relationally. Uh, Philip Zimbardo is a professor of psychology at Stanford. uh, and He gave a a TED talk years ago. And he said there's a dramatic increase in self-reported social awkwardness in young men. They don't know what to say in one-on-one interactions with the opposite sex. They don't know the rules to -to face-to-face contact, how to talk, how to listen. And then he isolated the problem. It's not a problem of their making. He said it's this rapid onslaught of technology has led to an excessive gaming world and an excessive pornography world. These are arousal addictions that become addictive to variety and competition. And he says, by the time a boy's 21, he's played over 10,000 hours of video games, and the average young boy watches 50 porn clips a week. And he concluded, boys' minds are being rewired. We're constantly trolling for instant arousal and have lost the social skill of romance, which is slow and gradual. And you see this man doesn't rush to advance towards her body, he compliments her face. And when he speaks to her, he calls her friend. I don't just want a sexual playmate. I want a relational equal, that he has character and he has kindness. I care about your heart and your mind. Right? And she compliments him back. She calls him Dodie, which um, in some translations can be called uncle or cousin, which you're like, Ooh, you know, but it's not that they're, she's marrying her cousin. It, it's a way to say you're like family to me. That means before there's this erotic expression, there's this deep communion connection of of you're like family, I love you like I'd love a brother or an uncle or a cousin. There's a deep intimacy. And she says, while the king was on his couch, or some translations say at his table, she says, while he was in in his circle, as I'm moving towards him, my nard gives forth its fragrance. This was an expensive perfume from India or the Himalayas. Uh, Some say it was an aphrodisiac. She says, as I move towards this man, and he's speaking to me, and he's kind to me. He's interested in me and listening to what I have to say. As I see, he's got character in how he treats others, and kindness, how he treats me. She says, my nard gave forth its fragrance. She said, my beloved is a satchel of myrrh that lies between my breasts. All right. Uh, The idea here is maybe her body's heating up as she's experiencing this, and this wonderful fragrance turns loose. And she says, my beloved is like the little satchel of myrrh resting between My breasts. Uh, It's fascinating. Uh, Some commentators uh, from centuries ago that grabbed only the uh, allegorical interpretation of this, that said, no, this is only a picture of Christ's love for the church, said, well, clearly her breasts are the Old and New Testament, and uh, the satchel is uh, Jesus Christ. And you go, "Uh, yeah, I mean, sure. That's not wrong. But there's mystery in the poetry. Is he leaning his head on her chest? Or is she just saying, your, your strength and your tenderness are a sweetness to me? They're the sweetness of my life, the way you treat me. My beloved is like a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Engedi was an oasis in the wilderness, still is, with waterfalls and pools in the midst of a harsh world. You're a safe and nourishing place for me. He says, behold, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Uh, It's fascinating. One commentator says that uh, doves are in scenes, also depict sexually attractive women. Your eyes are doves is cultural code for, quote, I find you sexually attractive. like, that's that's really hot writing. Thank you. (laughs) I think what he's trying to say is there's a softness and gentleness to your beauty. She's hardworking, but she's not harsh. She praises him back. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly beautiful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. I am the rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. It, it's interesting there. Uh, one commentator says, well, clearly now they're in a country scene. They're having sex outdoors. You're like, oh, okay, uh, yes. Or, or maybe he has a lot of plants in his inner chamber. It's hard to say. Uh, the temple and the king's palace were built with rafters of cedar. I think here the idea in the imagery, she says, is when I look at our relationship, it doesn't dehumanize, it's life-giving. It's like a garden, it's green, it's vibrant. Being around you makes me better, not just sad. And there's not just an encouragement and a sweetness to it, there's a strength to it. Our relationship has character and boundaries that are healthy. They're like cedars that are strong. There's something responsible and adult in the way we're treating each other. And as she says that, you notice, she says, I'm a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. She says, I'm beautiful. But, but then she says, I'm like a lily of the valleys. And he says, no, you're like a lily among the brambles. So is my lover among young women. He says, everyone else is like thorns compared to you. So he throws the other ladies under the bus. But again, he's complimenting her. And she says, an apple tree among the trees of the forest. So is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow. His fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting table and his banner over me is love. She says, you're, He says, you're like a, like a lily among the thorns. In a harsh world, there's a sweetness and a tenderness to the way you talk to me. She doesn't diminish him as a man. She is a sweetness to him and a kindness. And you see, as she's that, she looks at him and says, you're like an apple tree. Often in the Old Testament, to be under the shade of the Almighty is an image of protection, that God protects me. And she says, your strength is not a threat to me. Your strength is a protection to me. I feel safe when I'm with you. Not all masculinity is toxic. There is toxic masculinity, but you need someone who is strong and uses that strength for good. And I don't just mean strong physically, but strong morally and character and their decisions. Someone that you can trust, and I feel safe with you. And she said, so you are safe and you are nourishing and sustaining. You're like a tree that gives apples. You're like a life-giving person to me. Why? Because you have character and you have kindness. The way you speak to, to me makes me feel safe in a world that's dangerous. And as they speak this way to one another, she says, you're You've brought me into your banqueting house. This is Our love is a place of delight and nourishment. And your banner over me is love. That's the picture of a military banner. She says that you've flown a flag over the city and that flag declares you love me. You're not hiding me. I'm not on the side. I'm not a woman over here. I am somebody that you are declaring to the world. I love her. And his banner of strength and power is a declaration of kindness to me. Proverbs 29 says, what's desirable in a man is his kindness. It's better to be a poor man than a liar. Uh, ladies, uh, King Saul was the most attractive man in Israel. And part of that attractiveness was an obsession and insecurity about himself. And he became dangerous and died a terrible death. King David was, I uh, an eight, ruddy and handsome, but he feared God and loved him. And that was a man who could build a kingdom where the people were blessed by his leadership. You want a man who's a solid eight with good character, more than you want a 10 that's a collapsing building. Amen? Some of you have seen that. You've seen a girl with a guy and you've gone, him, really, he must be rich. Maybe, or maybe he has character. And what's desirable in a man is his kindness. You don't get discouraged if you don't meet the beauty standards of the day. What's solid in a relationship is that you have a character shaped by Christ and a kindness that mirrors the kindness of Christ. And it's when you've got character and kindness, as you're evaluating somebody, then you can move to cuteness. That's number three and you see they begin to talk about each other physically, the beauty to each other. You're like a lily. You're like an apple tree. They begin to notice, you are someone beautiful, lovely, desirable to me, and when someone's kind and generous, they become even more attractive in your eyes, to the point that in verse 5, she says, sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples. I am sick with love. I don't know that anyone in this room has ever said, sustain me with raisins. What does that mean? (laughs) These are fruits with a lot of seeds in them, so they were Pictured in, in ancient cultures as aphrodisiacs. They were often used in pagan fertility cults. Or when David was celebrating God blessing his people, blessing was associated with procreation. So he gave them all raisin cakes, which was the idea that go and procreate, have babies. So it's, crazy into a party like raisin cakes for everybody. And they're like, ah, you know, because uh, the idea is she's like, man, this guy has character. He's strong. He has kindness. He is loving. Somebody give me a raisin cake because I can't even handle being around this guy. She's going crazy. And in verse six, she says, his left hand is under my head. His right hand embraces me. That's a sexual position. This is probably a flashback because if you notice, she's talking to the ladies and she's saying, notice the progression of this love. And then she warns them. But I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles of the does of the field, that you do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She says, I have observed him, and his ob- character has been observable in the public square, that you all saw what his character was like. There was an old song by Akon, I don't if you remember it. Nobody wants to see us together, but it don't matter, no. And you're like, it doesn't? Really? If nobody wants to see you together, maybe you should evaluate your choices. And here her friends and her community, her church has seen this man and says, that man has character rightly to the maidens love you. And then look at how he treats you. He's not trying to use you, he's blessing you. He speaks with a kindness. He doesn't steal life from you. He's a source of life for you that you feel like you're growing and developing around a man like that. And so that leads her to attractiveness, to chemistry. I want this man physically. And guys, it's the same. You want a woman who is clothed with dignity. And yet in the midst of that, when she speaks, it's words of wisdom and words of grace. A lily among the thorns. And when you get around a person like that, it is natural to be attracted sexually. And yet something fascinating happens as they're beginning to run down this path of attraction. They've got character, they've got uh, kindness, they are cute. She says, but I adjure you, don't arouse or awaken love until it pleases. So much confusion is entered in the dating space today by putting sex before the evaluation of emotional intimacy. And sex, we'll talk more about this as the series goes on, but just to give you a little bit of a preview, sex is uh, exciting, it's fun, right, often. And in that, it fires all these chemicals in your body that say, do that again. And yet, if you do that, it can completely mess with the evaluative process of whether or not that person has character, whether or not you can trust them. And so here, this isn't some cruel prohibition just to be unkind. God is celebrating love, but he's like, but just make sure this is a person who is worthy of your affections. It's interesting that by the gazelles or does of the field, in Hebrew, it sounds just like the Lord Almighty, which is how you would make an oath back then. I adjure you by the strength of God Almighty. And yet she says the does and gazelles of the field, these are images of love. She says, "I, I warn you for the sake of your love, There's a tenderness to it. You don't run up on a gazelle. You don't chase a deer. It's a slow process to build a relationship that lasts. So don't rush the physicality and miss the greater intimacy. You look for character. You look for kindness. And then you see chemistry as there's a commitment to each other. He has unfurled his banner as a king and as a husband saying, I want her. His banner over me is love. Now, as we conclude, and again, I went long. Sorry, we've been off two weeks. You're you're right. Anyway. (laughs) Point one, I just want to encourage you as we close is feel no pressure to go out and try to find this person now, okay? So let me just say that. All the pressure's off. You don't need to go into the foyer and go, all right, what is he up to? Okay, who's serving? She's over there like, you know, like, no, 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 no. Don't start evaluating each other. Let's just evaluate ourselves and say, God, Before I start working to find them, will you go to work on me? Are there things that need to be shaped about my character? Have I been kind to the people around me? God, I want to, as Andy Stanley says it, I want to be the kind of person, the kind of person I'm looking for, is looking for. So, Lord, how do I become that kind of person that they're looking for? Where does my character need to be shaped? Do I embellish stories when I'm insecure? Do I lie to make myself feel better because there's a deep insecurity in me? What do I need to work on in my character? Etch me, God, into a cedar that's strong and an apple tree that's refreshing, right? And point two, I would say, is before you seek another person, you need to seek the Lord. Some of you go, well, how was she so secure in the midst of all the pressures to conform to external beauties? How could he be a man of such unimpeachable character in a world of such temptation? Well, in 1 John, it says it's the beloved who love. Those who have a a source of love can be a source of love. That you've got to get a relationship with God right before you'll get a relationship with a guy or a girl right. See, I think it's beautiful. This book is celebrating romantic love, and we'll get into uh, from attraction to dating and courtship and marriage and all those things, but, but but I want you to notice there is a truth to the allegorical interpretation because the Bible says about Genesis, when when God brought a man and woman together, Paul said in Ephesians, he says, I'm saying this is a profound mystery and it's a picture of Christ's love for the church. That all romantic love is meant to be a picture and a declaration of God's love for us. That God is righteous and he is good. He is true. He's not a hypocrite. He's not a liar and he's not out to hurt you. And he is kind and he is tender. Jesus doesn't stand back judging and condemning you for your faults and for your burned skin. He moves towards you with grace and says, I want to see your face. Your form is lovely. He unfurled a banner over us saying, I love you. In this, the love of God was manifest, that he sent his son into the world, that we might live through him. So before you find a bride or a groom, you need to meet the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, that our relational intimacy is meant to be a picture of the intimacy we were made for with God. And when you get that relationship right, God loves me. He's seen what I've done. He's seen the mistakes I've made. He's seen how I have failed. He's seen my weaknesses, but he moved towards me. He cared for me. He picked me up. He he spoke tenderly to me. He unfurled a banner over me that says, I love you. That his appearance was a declaration of love. When you understand that that's who God is, he's not here to condemn you, but rescue you. Then you have a source of love for others. Jesus made the point in his ministry to go to Samaria, a place many Jews would not travel. And he sat by a well with a woman and Asked her for a drink of water, and she said, what are you doing talking to me? Righteous men aren't supposed to talk to a woman like me. And they began to talk about living water, water that can satisfy your deep thirst and overflow into life for others. And she said, well, give me some of that living water so I don't have to go to this well anymore. And he said, if you knew who you were talking to, I would give it to you. And he said, go get your husband. She said, I don't have one. He said, I know you've had five, and the man you're living with right now won't marry you. She told a group of people later, that guy's got to be a prophet because he just told me everything I've ever done. And yet what's fascinating about that conversation, he doesn't condemn her. What was the context? He said, you're coming to this well, but I got a living water that will satisfy your soul and be a source of life for others. You've been going from man to man to man to man looking for them to satisfy a deep need that only the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, can. He said, you need to come to me. Let me forgive you. Let me love you. Let me cherish you. Let me care for you. You get a relationship with God right to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then you'll be a fountain of life for others. So before we get these relationships right, let's get a relationship with him right because he wants you. He came for you. He has moved towards you. Let's use this week in community group to move towards him, amen? If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, Thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.